Okay, so we are in the midst of a semester where we're going to talk about two different things, bibliology and hermeneutics. And so our uh, first couple of months uh, together this semester will be spent on bibliology. Bibliology is just a fancy word that means the doctrine of Scripture. What is Scripture? What are the attributes and characteristics of Scripture? And then after we have uh, spent ample time kind of uh, diving down into what Scripture is, then we'll move into hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a fancy word that means how to interpret uh, something, and in particular, Scripture. So, uh, once we know what it is, then we can de- determine what uh, it is that we do with it. So, bibliology and hermeneutics is what we're doing, and uh, I'm excited about our material today because it, it really is the foundation upon which our entire doctrine of Scripture is going to be built. So today we're going to talk about something called uh, inspiration. And inspiration, again, is, it's the foundation. It is the reason that all of the other things that we're going to say about Scripture uh, are true. So if you will, you could think of it as it's kind of the central thing. And then everything else that we're going to say about Scripture is kind of an implication of that. And, uh, and so we'll spend time talking about the clarity of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. All of those things are true because of the doctrine of inspiration. Inspiration is the foundation. Inspiration is the hub. Everything else is a spoke off of that. Scripture is authoritative because it's inspired. Scripture is inerrant because it's inspired. So that's what we are going to kind of attempt to lay a foundation of today as we talk about inspiration. So when you think of inspiration, there are a number of different things. If I just say the word inspiration, there are a number of different ideas that can come into your mind. Maybe you think of that song by Chicago, you're the meaning of my life, whatever it might be. Um, And so that's not obviously what we mean by inspiration. You might think of the way a sunset is really inspiring or the way that your spouse inspires you to be a better person or the way that Shakespeare's works are really inspiring or the way that Spielberg inspires modern filmmakers. That's not what we mean by the concept of inspiration. There is a very technical meaning that is attached to inspiration as we're looking at the doctrine of Scripture. And, uh, and so, uh, in fact, because of, of the, all of the different connotations that can attach to this word inspiration, all the different meanings that, uh, that it can connote, uh, things like the way that your spouse or Spielberg or sunsets or whatever can inspire you, some theologians have actually moved away from using the term inspiration and have instead just kind of gone to a more literal rendering of the underlying Greek term, which is just God-breathed. God breathed and so forth. But uh, inspiration, that word is the historical word that kind of gets to the heart of what we're going to talk about today. And uh, it's from uh, the Latin word inspirare, inspirare, uh, which is the prefix in, and then spirare, which means uh, to breathe, all right? And so think of the word respiration, right? It's to uh, breathe. And, uh, And so that's what inspiration means, is to breathe out. And it's the historic word that was used uh, in many of our uh, oldest <coughs> English translations. And so if you're looking at the King James Version in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which is kind of the 
uh, kind of the, the main text to get to this idea of inspiration. Second Timothy chapter 3.16 of the King James says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The NASB, the New American Standard Version, says all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So you see this idea, inspiration, that's where we get it from, is from a uh, translation of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. But you'll notice, if you're reading this in the ESV, uh, which is the translation we tend to use uh, most often here uh, at the Parkway, that, uh, that they use a different uh, phrase for that. They don't use the word inspiration. Instead, they use this literal meaning, which is breathed out. The ESV says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And other translations like the NIV are going to pick up this nuance uh, as well. The reason that uh, translations we see moving away from the language of inspiration is, again, because of all of these different uh, connotations, all these different nuances, all of these different misperceptions that can attach whenever you read the word inspiration. You think inspiration and you think of something that is not what the Bible is meaning. You think of a sunset or Spielberg or your spouse or whatever it might be, and that's not what the Bible is talking about, which is why some of these uh, translations have moved away from that. We see this just with the development of language in general. It's what's called a uh, semantic shift or semantic progression. You've probably heard some of these examples, but uh, just how words can change in their meaning over time. In fact, some words can mean the exact opposite of what they used to meant, Uh, all right? And so think of like in the 80s, something to be called bad, that very well might have been a good thing, right? Because of just this nuance that was related to it. I looked up a few of these uh, over the past week just to, to give you some examples. And so the word egregious, the word egregious, is that a positive connotations or negative connotations to you? Negative, right? It originally meant something that was very, very good. Uh, the word egregious uh, uh, originally meant something that was very, very good, but over time, it has shifted. There's been a semantic shift or progression in language to a degree where that no longer means what it used to mean. Uh, the word guy, all right? So this is a, some guy that I know, if we said that. The original meaning of the word guy was somewhat of a really grotesque appearance, right? So don't introduce your friend to some guy you know from now on. That was the original meaning, somewhat of a really grotesque uh, appearance. Uh, the word nice, man, this person's nice. That originally meant foolish or ignorant. And, uh, and the word meat, you think of meat, what do you think of as an, the opposite of meat? Yeah, vegetable and so forth. Meat originally meant anything that is a solid food, including fruits and vegetables and so forth, right? And so you see these examples of what's called, again, the semantic shift, which is why translations are kind of moving away from the language of inspiration, but that's still uh, the common theological term for what we're talking uh, about today. And so the, the, main, uh, the main word that we get this concept of um, inspiration from is thea. Theonoustos, all right? And so, what do you think thea means? Not theo, but thea. What do you think that means? God, right? So, we talk about theology. It's the study of God. Theos is the Greek word for God. Now, what about this little 
root word here? What does that remind you of? What's an English word that might have those letters? Pneumonia or pneumatic? What's the common link between those? A pneumatic drill is one that uses what? Air. Pneumonia is an, uh, an infection in your what? In your lungs and so forth, all right? And so that's what that means. It means breathed out. So God has breathed out. God's uh, breath, that's the underlying word. And so the, uh, <clears throat> the three words that are most important there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, for really wrestling through that, uh, that doctrine of inspiration are pasa, grafe, theopanustos. All grafe, we talked about uh, that uh, last week as just as uh, one of the words that authors of Scripture will use to describe Scripture itself. All sacred writings, all Scripture are inspired by God. So if you have a Bible and you want to flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to look at it in context. We'll start in <coughs> verse 10. Could somebody read 10 through 17 for us? Again, 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 17, if someone could read that for us. So when Paul writes there in uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16, when he writes, all Scripture is inspired by God, here's something to note. In that context, his primary concern is not what we would call the Bible. His primary concern is instead what we call the Old Testament, right? And so you look at verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. When Timothy is a child, the New Testament is not around, all right? And, uh, and so from childhood, you're, you're acquainted with the sacred writings, all Scripture is inspired by God. So Paul's particular concern in this particular passage is uh, primarily directed towards the Old Testament. But what we can do is we can build a theological case for the extension of this passage beyond this particular reference to the Old Testament to include the New Testament uh, as well. Some critics look at this verse and say, Paul is saying that the Old Testament is inspired, but the New Testament is not inspired. And we'll look at a number of verses that will show us that would be the uh, wrong um, interpretation of this. And, uh, and so I think most of these you should have on your, uh, your handout here because we'll move through them kind of quickly. There is this general pattern of sending that we see throughout the New Testament with uh, Jesus and his call upon the apostles. In fact, that's what an apostle means the word apostle means one who has been sent out. So there's this general pattern of sending and sending with a particular authority that is called apostolic uh, authority. Luke 10, 16, Jesus says this, the one who hears you, hears me, and the one who rejects you, rejects me, and the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So Jesus says, the same way that the Father has given me authority, so I have given you authority. And to reject you as an apostle is to reject me uh, the Savior, and to reject me is to reject the Father. Does that make sense, that, that uh, link that he's making there? Uh, in Acts chapter 10, 39 through 42, and we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead, uh, raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people but to us 
who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So the apostles, as they look on their ministry, they see this link between Jesus and themselves. They've been commissioned. They've been appointed uh, by Jesus. They've been sent out uh, by him with uh, his authority. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 2 that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In other words, the apostles are the medium, the means by which God's message is being communicated to uh, the people. Uh, Hebrews 2, 2 through 3, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. Again, this idea of this authority of Jesus has been now transmitted through the apostles and uh, in their ministry. But moving beyond just their general authority into their authority as uh, apostles, especially as it relates to uh, what is written in the New Testament, consider 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual... He should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So not only does Paul consider his writings to be a command of the Lord, but that is almost a test for whether or not someone is is a, a, a genuine prophet, a genuine teacher, is their ability to recognize this is now the Lord's writing, not just the Old Testament, but the things that Paul are, is writing in the New Testament, that that is... Uh, to a, a command of the Lord. First John chapter 4, verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. <coughs> By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and error. Again, there is this uh, measurement. There is this analysis. There's this evaluation of the person who's reading this. And part of that evaluation is, do you recognize that this is the writing of the Lord? Not just the writing of John the Apostle, but the writing of the Lord himself through John the Apostle. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So again, not just the word of men. This is the very word of God. We see this this extension of the idea in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, the, the extension of the idea that the Old Testament is inspired. And we see it being applied here in the, the, uh, the New Testament writings themselves. Uh, Paul and, uh, and Peter and uh, John and so forth are claiming there is a similar characteristic to the New Testament that there was in the Old Testament. That is this idea of inspiration. It's breathed out by the Lord and therefore carries his authority. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. And count... So this is Peter writing, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letter when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist their own destruction. Notice this next phrase, as they do the other scriptures. 
In other words, Peter says Paul's writings are on the same level as Scripture. They are as the other Scriptures. The implication is they themselves are Scriptures. Or 1 Timothy chapter 5, the last one we'll look at. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. What's fascinating about that is the first quote there, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, is from the book of Deuteronomy. The second quote there, the laborer deserves his wages, is not from the Old Testament at all. It's actually from the book of Luke, right? And so Paul has said Luke's writings are inspired. They are authoritative. They are scripture. Whatever scripture is, Uh, uh, Luke's writings are that. Peter has said that Paul's writings are that. John has said his own writings are that. So again, we get this idea, although 2 Timothy chapter 3, in its specific context, might be referring uh, specifically to the Old Testament, there is this extension and implication throughout the Scripture that the New Testament is going to now bear the same authority as the Old Testament because it too is inspired. It too is breathed out uh, by the Lord because these apostles are going to be official ambassadors or spokesmen uh, for God. So Peter considers Paul's writings to be Scripture. Paul considered Luke's to be Scripture. So again, by implication, what we then can do is take, take 2 Timothy chapter 3, extend it beyond just the Old Testament into the New Testament. Does that make sense, what we're doing there? And, uh, and so uh, the idea that you get from that is whatever 2 Timothy 3 is saying in regards to all Scripture, whatever that means, it must include not only the Old Testament but the New Testament. We'll talk about that uh, next week as we consider the topic of canonicity. What, Bi- what books should be in the Bible? Were there any that are left out? Any of those sorts of things that we'll walk through. And this sort of idea is just in keeping with Jesus' own prophecy, If you remember, towards the end of Jesus' life, in the book of John, he uh, begins to prophesy of the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit is going to come. We see it in chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, and so forth, these different implications. In John 14, he says this, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then in John 16, verses 13 through 14, he says this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So you see this this idea of... Uh, Jesus uh, prophesying that the apostles are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit to such a degree that their teaching is going to be from the Spirit. And, uh, and we certainly can build the case that that extends not just to their oral teaching, but to their literal teaching, to the, uh, the teaching that they do through uh, the writing of uh, Scripture. So I think we can build a case on the basis of all of these texts that all Scripture includes both Old and New Testament all Scripture, whenever it talks about 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3, all Scripture is inspired by God. That's referring not just to the Old Testament, but anything that is considered Scripture is inspired by God and therefore profitable and so forth. But I want to explore this word again, theopanoustos, and, uh, and kind of walk through, expound upon it a little bit more. If it, 
If when we say that uh, Scripture has been God-breathed or it's been inspired, if that doesn't mean the same way that uh, we might breathe out a poem, a poem or that a sunset might inspire us, what do we mean? And, uh, and, and so I'll read this uh, definition by uh, Benjamin Warfield, who wrote one of the <laughs> sort of classics on the, the work of inspiration. He said, inspiration is therefore usually defined as a supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Spirit of God, by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. One more time. Inspiration is therefore usually defined as a supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Spirit of God, by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. Uh, I really like this definition, and it is one of the classics on the subject. There is one little area, though, uh, that I think uh, Warfield might be somewhat misleading in his definition, and that is technically, technically the subject of inspiration is God, but the object of inspiration is not the authors of Scripture, but Scripture itself, which is an important distinction. It's not that Peter was inspired. It's that Peter's writings were inspired. Not the writer of Scripture, but that which is written is actually what is inspired. And so the way that Warfield uh, kind of uh, lays it out makes it sound like inspiration is the influence that's on the writers and not what's on uh, what is uh, written. But beyond that, I think it's a great uh, definition. The, the authors are led, they're moved by God in such a way that their writings are uh, inspired. And, uh, and so as an implication of this, if, if the writings are inspired, if the writings are God-breathed, the implication of that is whatever the Bible says, God says. We'll talk about that more when we talk about the subject of authority, the authority of Scripture. What God says, what the Bible says, God says. So this is the way that inspiration, as we talked about before, it's the hub from which all of these other doctrines that we're going to talk about uh, are formed. It's the foundation. And so if this begins to crumble, your entire doctrine of Scripture begins to crumble. If only some of Scripture is inspired, or if our idea of inspiration is insufficient, the way that a poem inspires you or something like that, then your entire doctrine of uh, Scripture is going to unravel. And, uh, and so we need to make sure we have a real firm foundation on what uh, inspiration uh, is. So before we kind of get into what, is this, what does this mean, how does God do this, I want to look at another uh, couple of passages and uh, so the first one being Second Timothy, or sorry, Second Peter, chapter one, sixteen through twenty-one. <laughs> I think that I think you have it on your sheet. Uh, if not, uh, turn to that. Second Peter, chapter one, sixteen through twenty-one. This is one of the most helpful verses uh, beyond Second Timothy, chapter three, to really flesh out this idea of uh, inspiration. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word <laughs> more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what's Peter talking about here? What is an example? What is a time when Peter might have been on a mountain? You saw there he, he mentions a mountain. On a mountain with Jesus, beholding majesty and hearing a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. The transfiguration, right? So that's what Peter's talking about. Peter's talking about the transfiguration. And what's fascinating is that he says that we have something that is more fully confirmed. You see that there, that phrase, more fully confirmed? In other words, in Peter's mind, this that you hold in your hand or on your phone or whatever it is, is better. This is better. This is more fully confirmed than even a voice from heaven. The same way that Jesus would say uh, in the book of John, he says, it's to your advantage that I go away so that the Holy Spirit would come. That doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem to be to our advantage to have the Holy Spirit and not Jesus. But that's what Peter is saying here, that this scripture is more fully confirmed uh, for us than that voice uh, from heaven, which means we don't have to lock ourselves up in our closets. We don't have to fast for days on end in order to hear God. Every morning when you wake up, grab the Bible and you hear from him. This is the word of God speaking to you. Not that there's anything wrong with going into your closet, not that there's anything wrong with fasting. That absolutely can help you to drive out some of the distractions. But that's all that's happening there. When you fast, when you go into your closet, all that's happening is you're just cutting off other voices so that the voice of Scripture may speak uh, more loudly. Consider also what Paul is going to say when he writes about Scripture. Romans chapter 1, it says, Which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who is descended from David according to the flesh. Which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That God's promises come to us through the prophets in the Scripture. Or Romans chapter 9, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Notice that the scripture says to Pharaoh, there's this personification of scripture as if the scripture itself is animated. The scripture itself is alive. The scripture itself is the active agent, the subject. Scripture is speaking, uh, again, as almost if it's alive. The same idea is in uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So the scripture foresees, the scripture preaches. Galatians 3.22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. So again, notice how the scriptures are personified. The scriptures are animated. That they take on a life uh, of their own. The scriptures preach, the scriptures speak, the scriptures foresee and imprison, like the scriptures are alive. Since and that makes sense because that's what divine breath does. Genesis chapter two, you're familiar with this verse. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Can anybody tell me what he does next? And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. That's what God's breath does. He breathes life into something. So when he breathes into Scripture, it becomes this living and active thing. It's the language of Hebrews chapter 4. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Or 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Scripture is living. God's breath gives life. God's breath creates that's what speech is. God, God creates by speech, and that's what speech is. It's just articulated breath. My mom's a, a speech therapist, and so I, I talked to her yesterday just about, tell me about the, the, the theory of language. That's all it's doing. It's just breath that is being formed through the various uh, different parts, which is my, why my voice is much deeper today than it normally is, because I've been sick, and so there's some structural differences that uh, express my breath in a different way uh, than normal. That's what breath is. That's what words are. Just breath that has been articulated, breath that has been formed. And uh, that's what God is doing in Scripture. He's taking his breath and he's forming something. So how does this whole thing happen? How is it that God providentially directs the authors of Scripture to write his words and, and one of the difficult things for us in kind of working through this process of inspiration is we know a lot more biblically about the result of inspiration than the process. We know what God does more than we know about how he does it. We know the scripture is inspired, but how God inspires scripture is much less clear uh, to us. <laughs> but I want to walk through a couple of things that I think will not be helpful for you as you think through this language of inspiration and kind of models or theories that you should not kind of uh, imagine this is the way that God does it. And uh, so I'll give you three different examples of sort of deficient, insufficient ways of understanding how God inspires Scripture. The first one's what's called natural inspiration. It's just the concept that the authors of Scripture were men of, of particular outstanding genius or something like that. The way that we might think that the founding fathers were just particularly brilliant, and, uh, and so the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, these sorts of things were inspired in the sense of they, they were particularly brilliant people, men of outstanding genius who wrote them. That's not obviously what we mean by natural inspiration. Kind of the modern example of that would be sort of New Age spirituality, New Age spirituality, this, this idea that someone is just really tapped in, kind of think Oprah, someone just really tapped in to uh, the world around them, nature and human nature and so forth. That's not what we mean by inspiration, not just that these people were particularly brilliant, particularly wired into the way that the world works, and so they just wrote out of that brilliance and, and genius and so forth. Uh, the reason that that's deficient is because it, it, it denies supernatural involvement in the process. It makes it all about the person. The person is just brilliant, and so they write, rather than saying that God has an active role in here, God is actually breathing out what's going on in the Scripture. And so that's the first one that I think is deficient. That's not what we mean by inspiration. The second one, mechanical dictation. If you want a concept for that, think of a stenographer right? A court stenographer, they're just typing whatever they hear, whether they agree with it or not, right? Their job is simply to record whatever it is that is being uh, spoken. That's the way that uh, Islam typically understands the way that Muhammad was, quote-unquote, inspired. 
that he simply just heard the voice. He didn't write any of his own commentary on that. He simply uh, heard Allah speak, and he wrote exactly what Allah spoke. And, uh, and so that's not what we mean by inspiration because it denies that God uses man's individual personality. Now, some parts of Scripture, we could say, were given by mechanical dictation. So the Ten Commandments, God just simply gives the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and so Moses doesn't write commentary on that or whatever it might be. Or uh, at certain times he might say, <laughs> like in the book of Revelation, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, and then he tells kind of verbatim, this is exactly what you should write. So there are examples of mechanical dictation in the Bible, but by and large that's not the way that the Bible itself uh, was inspired. And the last insufficient way to understand it would be um, what's called accommodation. That's the idea that Scripture is partially inspired. It's not completely inspired. It's not all Scripture is inspired, but some Scripture, or that Scripture which is inspired is profitable, or something like that. That's the idea of accommodation. Kind of the concept is to err is human, and humans wrote it, and therefore there must be some degree of error in honor of the inauguration of kind of a modern example of this would be uh, Jimmy Carter. He said this one time. He said, when we go to the Bible, we should keep in mind that the basic principles of the Bible are taught by God, but written down by human beings deprived of modern-day knowledge. So there is some fallibility in the writings of the Bible, which is the denial, again, of inspiration. If Scripture is inspired by God, not just the authors being inspired by God, but if God has inspired Scripture itself, it can't be fallible. We'll talk about that as we talk about uh, the implication of inerrancy. Another example of this would be Thomas Jefferson, another president who very famously created his own Bible. And the way that he created his own Bible is he went through and read it, and anything he agreed with, he left it in. Anything he didn't agree with, he cut it out. A lot of us would love to make a Bible like that. It'd probably be pretty short, though, right? And, uh, and so this is not what we mean by inspiration, the idea of accommodation or partial inspiration. When the Scripture says all Scripture is inspired by God, we want to stress that word all. All Scripture has been um, inspired by God and is therefore all of these different implications. The reason that accommodation is incorrect is because it denies God's ability to preserve his meaning in the text. Simply because a man wrote it does not mean that it has to be full of error. You want an example of that? Jesus Christ, fully man and yet no error whatsoever. All right, and so God can use humanity and preserve truth in the midst of that. Yes, you and I will make errors, but God can preserve us. There are things that we can say that are absolutely true, right? My name is Jeff. I am a man. Those kinds of things, they are just inherently true. And so just because we are human doesn't mean everything we do is erroneous. And so God preserves um, Scripture in such a way as to make it uh, authoritative and truthful and so forth. So if those models are insufficient, if that's not the way that God does it, if he doesn't do it through mechanical dictation or through accommodation or through natural inspiration, how does he do it? And we might say he does it in a number of ways. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Sometimes... 
it was something like dictation. We talked about that, the Ten Commandments. Or uh, at times, Jeremiah would tell his, uh, his uh, friend and secretary, Baruch, he would say, write this down exactly like I'm telling you. Sometimes there was something like dictation, but oftentimes there was not. Sometimes there was the use of external resources. Consider what Luke says in his opening uh, greeting, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. <coughs> Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So sometimes it's dictation. Sometimes it's the use of a research process that Luke is using these other writings that exist in the oral tradition that's circulating in the early church, and he's writing what he's writing on the basis of those sort of things, and yet God is still preserving his writings. Sometimes it's through personal experience. Sometimes it's through the use of dreams or visions. Again, God uses diverse ways in regards to how it is that he directs the authors of Scripture to write what he would be, uh, what he would inspire as scripture, and the Bible itself is going to use an, a, a variety of terms um, to describe the way that the Lord superintends this process, that the Lord moves, that the Lord leads, that the Lord guides, the Lord directs. We could say that He composes, He supervises the process, He superintends the authors of Scripture in such a way as to preserve His meaning. In the text, even though he's using individual um, personalities and so forth, and what's called concurrence, that God can both um, sovereignly determine and preserve his meaning and use human personality. This idea of concurrence, we, we understand that in the realm of sovereignty as well, just in general, that God can sovereignly do something and yet at the same time hold man responsible. So in our sermons uh, last week and then this week, we've considered uh, Judas and his betrayal, right? And we would say, absolutely, that's sovereignly dictated by the Lord. It's appointed by the Lord. It's orchestrated by the Lord. It's ordained by the Lord. And yet Judas is absolutely responsible for his sin. This idea of concurrence or compatibilism, that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are compatible. In the same way, God's sovereignty and man's writing of Scripture using his own personality and experiences and so forth are concurrent. They are uh, compatible. And as a result of this, there are times in the Scripture where you can get these little hints of the unique uh, individual sort of personality of the authors of Scripture. We've talked about that before as we've walked through Mark's Gospel and, uh, and considered all the different ways that Mark is different from Matthew, who's different from Luke, who's different from John, we talked about how they might tell the exact same story, and yet they have different emphases. There's different things that they want to highlight in their telling of those stories because they have individual experiences, individual desires, individual themes that they want to bring out in their books. So consider Psalm 23, one of the most famous psalms and so forth. How does that begin? The Lord is my shepherd. Who's writing that? King David, right? What did King David do before he was king? He was a little shepherd boy, right? So uh, who else 
could write this uh, uh, sort of psalm on the, the, the way that the Lord is a shepherd, but a former shepherd. The Lord uses his experiences and kind of infuses that into the text so that it has this depth uh, to it and so forth. This uh, deep pastoral language <coughs> that uh, David would have been able to uh, acquire. Or um, uh, last week, uh, Jerry mentioned that, uh, that Jesus is he's there in Gethsemane. He's being pressed down. The word Gethsemane is, is a word that means olive pressed, and, and, and Jesus, like an olive, is being pressed in Gethsemane, so much so that he sweat drops of blood. The, that's only mentioned in what gospel? Which gospel would you guess? Luke. It's actually Luke. Now, what does Luke do for, for a living? He's a physician, right? So he might have a particular interest in this uh, hematohydrosis or whatever it's called, this, this phenomenon um, that uh, people, when they're under extreme anguish, uh, could actually sweat drops of blood. And, uh, and so another example, who wrote the most in the New Testament about how Christians are to relate to Old Testament law? Paul, right? And what did he do before he was converted? He was a Pharisee, not only a Pharisee, but a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? So who better to write this beautiful understanding that the law cannot save? If anyone was going to be saved by the law, it was Paul. He was righteous under the law, and yet he recognized because of his unique experiences and so forth, he is able to bring that out in the text, and God is able, uh, because God has been working through his life from before the time he's even born to bring him to the point where he can then write these beautiful treatises for us to be able to understand um, the, the uh, topic of how Christians relate to Old Testament law. And so all this means is that God is using the unique perspectives, the unique writing styles and personalities of the authors of Scripture, which should cause us to more marvel at the beauty of the text, the intricacy, the complexity of the text as we recognize that it's not either God or man writing it. It's this combination where God and man are both writing it. Obviously, God's superintending that process. God's sitting over that process such that nothing is written except for what he desires to be written. As we kind of begin to wrap up, just one more thought that I think is really fascinating. We've talked about there being these two authors of scripture. One is man and one is God. There are a couple of places where you get a, a third nuance that, uh, that I think is just interesting. I just want to, to bring it up. And uh, so if you have, I don't know if I put these on your, uh, your sheet, but uh, Romans 16, 22 says this. By the way, who wrote Romans? Paul. Paul wrote Romans, all right. Romans 16, 22 says this. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Or First Peter chapter 5, verse 12. <clears throat> By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is uh, the use of something that's called an amenuensis. You don't have to know that word. But amenuensis, an amenuensis is like a secretary. Uh, and uh, someone who writes something for somebody else. 
So there's a third level that we might understand, like the book of Romans. If someone were to ask you who wrote Romans, there's a sense in which you could say Tertius wrote it, because he was the one who actually wrote it. Probably by this time, Paul's really busy, might have an eye condition that would not allow him to write uh, an entire letter the length of uh, Romans. And so Tertius wrote it. So there's a sense in which you could say Tertius wrote the book of Romans. There's a sense in which you could say Paul wrote the book of Romans. There's a third sense in which you can say God wrote uh, the book of Romans. All of these are going to be true just with different meanings attached to them. The way that God writes Romans is different from how Paul writes it, which is different from how Tertius writes it. I only mention that just in case you're, you come upon something like Romans 16, 22 in your writings, uh, readings and you think, oh, I thought Paul wrote the book of Romans, then you'll have a category for understanding the use of this, again, what's called an amenuensis. So let me kind of summarize our discussion, and then I'll have uh, Zachary come up and uh, do some uh, Q&A. So summary of kind of the, the foundation that we're attempting to lay for the topic of inspiration, that Scripture is inspired by God. There are uh, five different essential elements to understand here. The first one the divine element, the divine element that God, the Holy Spirit, superintended the writers, ensuring the accuracy of the writing. There must be this uh, in your understanding of inspiration. There must be the divine element. That's the most important element. All Scripture is inspired by God, not just inspired, not just breathed out, not just noustos, but theopneustos. All Scripture is inspired by God. So there's the divine element. There's also the human element, that it's not just mechanical dictation. It's not just, um, you know, Peter or Paul or whoever having a dream at night, simply writing down the exact words that God said, that somehow God can use the individual personalities and unique experiences of the authors of Scripture in such a way as to add this level of beauty and complexity uh, to the scriptures. So there's the divine element, the human element. The result of this partnership, the divine and human authorship, is the recording of God's truth without error. The result of the divine human authorship is the recording of God's truth without error, uh, which we'll talk about when we talk about inerrancy. That also means there's this implication that it's authoritative and sufficient and so forth that we'll talk about over the next few weeks. A fourth essential element <laughs> that inspiration extends to the selection of the very words by the writers. That God doesn't just inspire the general idea, that he inspires down to the very words. It's a, a, the, the theological phrase is verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal, in, in the very words that are used, not that God verbally speaks them, but the very words that are used are inspired. Plenary is the idea of fullness, so absolutely every single word of Scripture, God superintends. And then the last one, that inspiration is the foundation of the entire doctrine of Scripture. All the other characteristics of Scripture are just going to be implications of this central doctrine. So those are the, the five sort of essential elements, and we'll kind of build on this doctrine in our coming weeks as we begin to explore what are the implications of inspiration? What are the effects of it? What are the walls that we now build on this foundation that protect us as we think through a doctrine of Scripture?
So let me pray for us, and then as I do so, Zach will come up and help us with some Q&A. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that you have inspired scripture in such a way as to um, preserve it from error and to make it perfectly communicate all that you want it to communicate, Lord, that it's not just partially inspired, uh, but fully inspired by you, and therefore, as a result, it's true and authoritative and sufficient and clear and so forth. And so I pray that you'd help us as we continue to explore this topic and uh, others, Lord, to just have a deeper growing appreciation uh, for your word that it might, we might be able to confess along with the psalmist that it's a treasure, it's a light, it's a lamp unto us, Lord. And so we love you. We want to love you more. Would you help us? We ask because you're a good father. You give good gifts. You've given us your son. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your scripture. And so we love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.